Hello and welcome to The Stack. On this week's show, we cover the redesign of Bon Appetit magazine. We speak with the editor-in-chief of Tatler Hong Kong, and we pay tribute to legendary ad man George Lewis, also known for his iconic magazine covers for Esquire. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show talking about the redesign of the food title Bon Appetit, always a favorite, right in time for their holiday issue. I had the pleasure to speak with Bon Appetit's creative director, Arsh Razuddin, about the changes. Arsh Razuddin from Bon Appetit magazine. Welcome to The Stack. A pleasure talking to you. I spoke to Don Davis. A pleasure. I love the magazine. And one of my favorite things of Bon Appetit, in fact, is the design itself. The covers are always so colorful, very beautiful. Mm -hmm. And you guys are ready for a big redesign. Can you tell us a bit more about the redesign? So it's the holiday issue. That's the first one after the redesign, right? Yeah. I've been here for about a year and, you know, I came on board knowing that some sort of redesign would happen. And throughout the year, I've just kind of been working, you know, with the old magazine and how it's laid out and tried to figure out what I want to change with it and what I think would make it a bit more in my style and what I want to see in Bon Appetit, which I think was more so something that's a little bit more pulled back. I wanted it to still have the fun an energetic feeling that Bon App has always been known for, but I wanted it to be just a little more elevated. And, you know, as the magazine shifts and we start to, I guess, showcase different types of people and cultures and different types of storytelling, I think there are moments in which the playfulness could be pulled back just a touch. And I still want it to live in certain sections of the magazine, but yeah, I think I think we elevated it a little bit. It's a little more sophisticated, but it still has that charm and playfulness that Bon Appetit has always had. And Arsh, it, it does make sense to me as well, because I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I see this in Bon Appetit. I mean, I know it's about food and drink, but actually food and drink, they can also be political. So there's also a serious mm -hmm. component in all of this. And I think that's perhaps what you want to achieve with perhaps a little bit on the redesign, right? Yeah, and I think, you know, the magazine is obviously about the food and the recipes, but there are moments where it's more than that. And I want that, yeah. the words and the storytelling to shine through, and I want the art and photos to accompany it and elevate it. So yeah, I'm, I'm looking to strike a balance between the two. Well, and I think you're doing that very well. But for example, looking at the cover, I mean, it's extremely bright. Because I have to be honest, that's always been one of my favorite things about Bon Appetit. I, I love that because actually it reminds me of food. It makes me feel hungry in a way. Yeah. And that, that is continuing, right? This kind of the vibrance, the vivacious colors, at least on the cover. Yeah, yeah, of course. I think a little less playful in a way that is just, I don't know, I just want it to feel slightly more sophisticated sometimes and I think the cover strikes a good balance between the two and uh, yeah the I mean I love the cover it's definitely 
a little unique compared to what we've done in the past. It's more of a setup. It just feels it feels different for BA. And I thought the blue background was, you know, a surprise for holiday and it sticks out a bit more. And yeah, I mean, we all love it. It was we concepted covers for months and, you know, some that we really loved didn't turn out the way we wanted and some that we didn't expect to turn out great or lovely. So it was, it was definitely a mix and we had very many choices to choose from, which was nice. I think the blue was very bold. You know, it doesn't need to necessarily yeah. be kind of all red and Christmassy, even though there is yeah. a little bit of that element as well. Arsh, I want to ask the basic questions, redesign here. What about the logo? Did it change as well? So the logo didn't change drastically, but we worked with the typographer, Jeremy Mickle, who's based in LA, to kind of just to change it in a way that would still anchor the brand with the same Bon Appetit look, but we wanted it to feel a little more relevant to the rest of the typefaces and the style that we were using throughout the magazine now and in the redesign. And, you know, we, Caroline Newton, the design director, who was my partner in crime on this, we went through all of the BA archives and we really loved the 60s and 70s cookbook era and the BA covers. And Jeremy introduced us to like the phototype era and the type of fonts that didn't have the perfect crisp edges. And this new logo that was redrawn by him has these like beautiful flourishes and curves and rounds that it didn't have before. And there's like a very nice accent on the E that we love. And I think a lot of this has been, we just wanted it to look a bit more elegant and pretty. And I think there's high contrast strokes and it sits on the page smaller, similar to the New Yorker, which is exciting. It's not going to go from fully from left to right. So it's really, really lovely. And I think you can kind of see it throughout, even though it's different from the insides of the magazine, but we have four typefaces that we're using officially. We're going to keep Futura, which has been in BA for so long now. And we're adding Baskerville Owners, which is also made by Jerry Mickle. And then he designed a custom typeface for us called Aperitif, which is just like a nod to the beginning of a meal and like a new typeface and logo and era of BA design. So it's really lovely. And I think people will like it. It's different, but it's, it's really elegant. What about the new features in the magazine itself? Will there be new columns? You know, if you can tell us a bit more about those changes as well. There's a few new columns in the front of book, and we restructured the magazine to make more sense editorially. For example, like Basically, which is a huge section that our readers love that's usually in the back of book, we thought would make sense in the front of book, and it actually is what we're going to start with. And the new front of book section is called Table Talk, and there's an entryway into it. And then on top of that, you know, we have three new columns, one called Small Plates, Big Opinions, which is going to be well-known chefs and what they feed their children. And the children can range from newborn to however old. I pitched a column that we actually are using now, which I'm excited about, called Eye Candy. And it's going to be a photo or visual essay on the cross-juncture of food and art, whether that be photography or installation or ceramics. And it's going to be written, you know, a 200-word little essay with it by whoever pitched or hopefully people from the art team will pitch. But... 
yeah, for, for anyone at VA to write about. So that's, that's a really fun one. And then, you know, we have a ton more coming. Those are the two new ones in this issue, but there are going to be a lot more moving forward. So in a way, you know, those changes, they probably would not scare the usual reader of Bon Appetit as well. It's kind of no. perhaps a, a progression, right? I agree. Yeah. Nothing totally off base. I think eye candy is a little different and maybe a little more editorial or literary compared to what BA is usually done. But it's I think it's still really playful and fun. And you'll see when it comes out, it's, they're really quirky and unique photos. And it's really nice. And Arsh, I know you told me you've been, uh, I believe, a year at Bon Appetit, right? Yeah. As a creative director, did you always work with things related to food or not really? You had a, perhaps no, a, different, no, a different background before. Yeah, I mean, I was an art director before this, but mainly in news and news and journalism media. Like I was at the Times opinion section and I was at the Atlantic for a while. I mean, I've always loved food and I think it's a really good fit for me, but I've never worked in it. Well, because you can do so much, perhaps, as a creative director with the colors, you know, the playfulness. Yeah. Are you a good cook as well? I know we were talking that you're perhaps a little bit more of a home cook, you mentioned. Yeah, I'm right? definitely a home cook. I mean, I think growing up with two Indian parents, I, I can cook and I can cook for a big group. It's not always pretty. I think the photos that I help direct on sets are way more beautiful than what my food ends up turning out with, but it tastes good and I can cook for a, a big group. I'm not much of a baker. I have a little more trouble with that. I think I don't like to stick to rules. I go rogue often with directions and recipes and ingredients, which is not always a good thing, but with baking, I can't do that. So I'm definitely a home cook for sure. And one thing as a reader of Bon Appetit, I mean, I know it's quite traditional for a food magazine, but I do like recipes. Are they still in there? Because still by this day, I do like a, a chickpea with egg recipe uh -huh. that I read at Bon Appetit. It's lovely. I mean, that was an amazing discovery and it's one of my favorite dishes nowadays as well. Oh, yes. I mean, recipes are still the number one. The food and the recipes are still the number one point of BA in the magazine. And like, we want to keep pushing that. And the whole feature well is full of recipes. I think this one in particular was one of our highest recipe feature wells that we've had in a long time. There, there's a ton in there and, and they range so vastly from a fancy frugal holiday party. We had a recipe of like Coke and wine mix for a drink. And then it goes all the way to a meatloaf. And then we have Noche Buena, like a Cuban holiday themed menu. And that is like a total different set of recipes. And we have a pulled pork and there, there's just so much in this issue. And I'm, I'm so proud of it. And the recipes are still probably the number one goal for BA. It feels to me that the holiday issue for Bon Appetit, it feels like it's like a September issue for Vogue, right? Because I mean, yeah. the holidays, I mean, we, that's all we can think of, food. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's where recipes really come in handy, Thanksgiving and Christmas and holiday just season in general and people getting together. So yeah, it's important. And I, I definitely think people reach for the magazine a bit more in this time. That's amazing. Well, finally, is there a special recipe in your family that you do every kind of Christmas or, 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 or at the season? Mm -hmm. Does it need to be exactly Christmas? You know, we don't celebrate Christmas in my family per se. So there's not one recipe that in the holidays that we do, but there are, there are like warmer mm. soup 
and stews that just come with the season that I that we do. Like a nihari is like a South Asian dish with different types of meat. We use goat and it's like a very spicy brown stew with tomato base. That's probably what we do the most, but our go-to family recipe that all of us wait for is a biryani, which I don't know if you guys have had, but it's just like a big rice dish. We use goat in it as well. And my dad makes it in a huge pot and we all just kill it together. So thank you very much, Ash. And Bon Appetit latest issue is out now. And now we head to Hong Kong. At the end of last year, Jacqueline Tsang became the editor-in-chief of Tatler Hong Kong, one of the region's most iconic glossy magazines. Monaco's Naomi Shu Elegant caught up with Jacqueline one year into the job to see how it's going. So as editor-in-chief and editorial director, my purview is within Tatler Hong Kong. So I'm looking at print content, online content, social media, and also commercial initiatives as well. So what other people might call branded content. So anything that can be labeled content is under me, which makes my job a really, really fun one. And there's also a a lot of, I think... um, I'm working quite closely, actually, with the commercial teams and the sales teams, which is something that I think might not always be the case in other publication companies. Usually there's a very church and state approach, you know, between editorial and sales, like some editorial directors want to keep that line very, very clear. And I think that when I came in, it was because I wanted to keep the boundaries quite clear, but also I know that I personally have quite a high comfort level when it comes to working with commercial and sales, because I do think that we can have an understanding and we can support each other. And as long as we do so with integrity, I think that's all that matters. How would you define Tatler Hong Kong to someone who's not from Hong Kong? Because I know, for example, people in England might have a very specific view of what Tatler is that isn't actually your own publication. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. So uh, there there has been a lot of confusion over the years, I think, because when people are in London, they know about the Tatler there. And it's definitely a very different thing from uh, Tatler Asia. So people who actually grew up here might think of Tatler as a Tatler they grew up with, because that Tatler was very, very focused on society. It was very focused on maybe wealthy and powerful families in Hong Kong. When I grew up with it, that was how I knew Tatler. So when I was born and raised in Hong Kong, and I always knew Tatler as the society magazine, anyone who was anyone in Hong Kong would be in that magazine. I actually think that at one point, my mom was in the magazine, and I was in there with her. It was the Oh God, it was a May 2000 issue. And it was uh, because it was May, they wanted to do a Mother's Day special. So they had kind of mothers and their daughters or mothers and the kids special that way. And then, so my mom and I were in that one. I was a, a terrible bratty teenager. It was really funny. So yeah, several years later, 20 or so years later, here I am <laughs> back at the magazine, but this time working on it. And it's definitely changed since. So the magazine went through a rebranding in March, 2020. So this was when the CEO, Michel Lamounier, he made the decision, worked with the team to really change the direction of Tatler. So whereas before it was very much about society, about powerful and privileged families, he wanted to make sure that we actually looked at people who were making an impact, 
people who were doing things with a purpose, with meaning, who were actually making a difference. So when we look at people to interview now, when we're looking at potential cover stars, when we're looking at potential feature angles, we're no longer looking at maybe their family backgrounds or maybe who their parents were, who their grandparents are, but we're looking at what they're doing. So we're looking at the ideas that they have. Are they innovative? Are they making an impact? Do they have purpose? You know, are they actually doing something that's different from the status quo? So this happened, it feels like a long time ago, but it's actually only just two years ago. But I think that it's it's made such a difference. And I've already seen the talent that it's attracted. So the people working on Tatler now are the people who care deeply about these issues. Actually, a lot of them are from my old company. So it's almost like seeing half my old office here at Tatler because it's people that I respect and admire greatly. And now they're here working with me again. And I'm really happy about that. Could you maybe giving the giving an example of the most recent issue, some of the stories and people that we might find in it? Yeah, I think to that point, I would say look at the August issue because that was easily one of my favorite issues this year because that is our diversity and inclusion issue. So that was when we looked at, for our cover story, we looked at queer families in Hong Kong and we looked at primarily gay families in Hong Kong and what kind of family rights they had. So if a gay couple wanted to adopt a child, if they wanted to have their own child, what rights do they have and what rights don't they have? You know, and uh, we we kind of sat there at a meeting room and we thought of this idea. We wanted to look into it and we we bit off a bit more than we could chew. We didn't realize what a big issue it was. So we spoke to lawyers, we spoke to couples, we spoke to families who some of them were, were fine with being named and some of them were actually a bit worried. They didn't want to get in trouble because I think the lines are so blurry and I think the legalities can be a bit murky so that they just wanted to err on the safe side. And it was just fascinating getting into this story and our writer... Sabrina Lowe, she she spent weeks and weeks and weeks researching the story, writing and rewriting drafts because it's so tricky to get right. You don't want to say the wrong thing. You don't want to express something the wrong way. So that was easily one of my um, favorite stories this year. And I think it really goes towards what I was saying before about the stories that matter, the stories that have meaning and uh, not just about maybe a more privileged life, which is what we used to focus on here at Teller. That's super interesting. I'm wondering like, since you've come on as, as editor-in-chief, how have you balanced kind of wanting to inject so much of this new narrative into the magazine while at the same time maybe keeping alive some of that iconic glamour that people really associate with the brand? I think with how we cover luxury, that pretty much takes care of itself in its own way. I mean, we have Cherry Moy as our fashion director, and that girl is amazing. She is a Tyler ambassador. She's just come back from Paris Fashion Week, and she's she's been snapped by paparazzi. She's been, you know, all over Getty images even, and she looks incredible. But I think one of the most amazing things is she is so open. She's a lovely person to work with, and she is so genuinely interested in fashion. And I think when you have people like that working on your fashion content, watch content, jewelry content, you're immediately going to get an incredible kind of view on luxury that you can't get anywhere else. We don't want to just rewrite press releases, for example, about, you know, oh, the latest drop, the latest collection. We can cover those, but we want to cover it in a more meaningful way. So we don't want to be a content farm, for example. We want to really make use of the incredible talent we have in the company. We have these experienced editors. We have these incredible directors. And we really want to have help them get their voices across. So you're sitting in a very interesting location right now that I think really encapsulates <laughs> kind of the unique um, mm-hmm. status of Tatler in Hong Kong. Can you tell us a bit about that? 
I am in Tatler House. Tatler House is a surface apartment, essentially. It's a Pacific place across from Upper House. And I didn't realize how lucky I was. And I think I, I took it for granted because uh, it is a wonderful location to, to be in. So it's, it's a place that we use for small events sometimes, for client meetings sometimes. It is fully decorated with luxury home accessories. It's extremely beautiful from a design standpoint. It's very comfortable. And it's it's definitely a lovely place to be in, in between meetings, for example. Sometimes I'll come here and uh, work from the dining room, the living room, if I have that awkward 45 minutes in between events or meetings. And it's definitely, I think it's 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 so on brand <laughs> to, to use a, a common term. It's definitely very, very Tatler in the sense that we do love this side of it. We do love the luxury aspect of it. And we do want when we meet people, when we meet clients or when we meet interviewees to be able to bring them here and for them to see that, you know, look, we have a luxury lifestyle, but we do want to talk about things that matter. And the two don't necessarily have to be mutually exclusive. It can be, you know, we can absolutely tackle both at the same time. Thank you very much, Jacqueline. And the latest issue of Tatler Hong Kong is out now. And now it's time for us to replay a very special interview for us. Back in 2016, Monaco's Tone Edwards spoke to George Louis, the iconic ad man. He did fantastic covers for Squire magazine, including uh, the one with Muhammad Ali. Uh, he died uh, last week, aged 91. But here is our uh, you know, little tribute from the stack to him. And in this excerpt from the interview, he talks about his work at Esquire. Many people still think that I was the art director at Esquire magazine. I started my ad agency in 1960. It was a great success. It was the beginning of the creative revolution. Then the editor of the magazine, Harold Hayes, who uh, was fighting it out with a few other editors to get the top job, uh, was watching my career, reading about me in the Times and all the, and, and, uh, and magazines all over America. The day he became the number one editor, he called me up and uh, asked to have lunch with me. And when he sat down, he sat, and the first thing he said out of, that came out of his mouth was, George, is there any way you can help me figure out how to do better magazine covers? And I asked him how he produced them down, and, and he said, well, um, first we have a meeting of everybody in the, at Esquire after working on, a, on an issue, and we decided what article we should do a cover on. I said, yeah. He said, and then we would all, some of us would all come with ideas, and we'd choose four or five, and we would comp them up, at which point I said, oh, my God, group fucking grope. He said, what? I said, group grope. Is that the way you work with James Baldwin? Is that the way you work with Norman Mailer? No, of course not. So I said, what you have to do is you have to get a, somebody who doesn't work at Esquire to take a look at the, what's in an issue. And if there isn't an idea there for one, two, or even three great covers, you've got a lousy magazine. And I started to write names of people down that he could possibly uh, work with. And, and he said, no, no, wait a minute. And he had a Southern accent, by the way. He was a Southern liberal, which was an oxymoron in those days. <laughs> and uh, he said, you gotta do me a favor, pal. He said, you gotta do me one cover. So I said, okay, I'll do your cover. I said, when's the next one due? He said, well, uh, it's due in four days, but I'll, I'll give you the one for the, the month after. I said, no, no, give me the one that's due in four days. And he said, really? I said, yeah. 
I said, well, tell me what's in the issue. He said, well, I have to go back and get all the stories. I said, I don't want to read the stories. Tell me what's in the issue. He described, he went, well, there's this and this and this and this and this and this and this. And, this. and finally he mentioned, you know, uh, oh, there's going to be a championship fight between Floyd Patterson and, uh, and Sonny Liston. And then he went on, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, the minute I heard that, I knew I would do a cover of showing Floyd Patterson, who was a 10-to-1 favorite, uh, dead in the middle of a ring, because I knew that Sonny Liston was going to clean his clock. I knew he was going to kill him. So I produced a commercial where I got a boxer who looked like Floyd Patterson, same weight, et cetera, et cetera. We had photographs taken in the middle of an arena. He's laying dead in the middle of a boxing ring, and around him, everybody's left him. He was left for dead. And... Uh, and I sent it to him. He, he had it there. He thought I was crazy. You're calling the fight. I said, yeah, I'm calling the fight. But you're wrong. Everybody, nobody agrees with you. I said, Harold, trust me, I'm right. And he had the guts to run it. In fact, I found out years later that even though he had just gotten the job, he threatened to quit when the publisher said that you couldn't run it. And he ran it. In fact, when the magazine came out, the publisher wrote in an editor in his publisher's page, you see that cover? We don't agree with it. George Lois, the designer, did that. <laughs> in any case, uh, when the issue came out, it was a giant hit. It was uh, everybody in America thought it was crazy. The listen was going to be destroyed by Floyd Patterson. And four or five days later, the fight took place. And Liston knocked out uh, Floyd Patterson and Esquire was considered a genius publication and I went on to do them for the covers for Harold for uh, almost the next 10 years. What I really loved about doing the covers was that uh, they became a, a canvas for me. And not only a canvas for my graphic ability but like a canvas for my political beliefs. I was against the Vietnam War, against racism. I'm a, kind of a left-winger. And um, I was able to do 12 anti-war covers at a time when everybody in America thought mm. the Vietnam War was, was an okay war. Can you believe that? Mm. You know? And again, people said, uh, gee, what, what training did you have for that? I said, I, said, I had never done a magazine cover in my life. Mm. Uh, it, that didn't matter. It was a graphic design problem, but it was a thinking problem. Mm. You know, I've only done one uh, music video, Bob Dylan's Joker Man. And Kurt Loder and a lot and most critics in America think that, that in, in I did it in nineteen eighty two think that was that's still the best music music video ever done. Every problem to me is a challenge to come up with something so innovative that you literally uh, almost faint when you see the idea. That was the legendary George Lewis, and you can listen to the full interview on Monaco.com. Just look out for the episode with his interview back in 2016. That's it for this week's show. My thanks to our editor, Adam Heaton. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fbandmonaco.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday at 10 a.m. London time. Meanwhile, you can always listen again at monaco.com, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Before we go, a little song for you. George Lewis directed the video for the song, by the way. It's Bob Dylan with Joker Man. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. Oh,